Hello. Is everyone all right? Just a few things at the top. If there is a fire, I don't know what the fire alarm sounds like here. It's probably some like, oh, I was going to say it sounds like an NTS radio show. Um, but if there's a fire, just go out that way, keep it chill. Uh, toilets that way. Uh, and we are uh, recording a podcast this evening, and I just need to calibrate some microphones. So if this side of the audience, can I have a ooh? Mm. This side an ah. ah. And together. Ah. And can we have a short burst uh, of applause? <laughs> and we won't practice laughing because that's, that's a recipe for disaster. But uh, yeah, thank you for coming to Chew the Fat. Uh, it's, it, not only is it the first one, apparently it's the first day of spring today, uh, which is all very nice. Um, yeah, an event where uh, we, we come eat, we come drink, and we come chew the fat. Uh, if you don't know, uh, my name's Tim, and I run it with Jake over there. Uh, and like all good origin stories, uh, this idea came at the back of the broodnell uh, after we got through a rabbit hole, and we, we like long conversations and talking, and we thought, what happens if we invite some specialists to give us a bit more information, and we could discuss later on. And that's what's happened. Uh, all the money from this event and the next five we're going to do throughout the year, it's all going to charity. We've uh, teamed up with uh, Leeds Food Bank uh, to help them out. Uh, we all know the situation of the world and our country. And in the past year, a 13% increase in uh, food bank. And that's because of low income. That's because of uh, delays to benefits and changes in the system. Uh, so all the money uh, from your ticket is going to that, which is all really good. But onto the evening. So perception of time in the digital age. Nobody signed up for the digital age. Apparently, we just like tick some T's and C's. We took a handful of cookies, and here we are in 2019 uh, without any privacy anymore. Apparently, but if we look at it 50 years ago, that's when the digital age kind of happened. If you look at when we landed on the moon, uh, and from then, hardware's got faster, smaller. Software's got more complex, more simple. Uh, and what else? Networks have got bigger. And if you look at advances in communication, advances in logistics, advances in transportation, advances in economy, and it all turns out that we just want to look at where we are on our phone. And I was walking here this evening, and a guy was on his phone, and, I, he, and he looked at me like I didn't know where I was going. But um, whatever. So I've actually had to stop my dad from walking purposely into them so we don't get arrested for a, a disruption of the peace. Because apparently, uh, to Morgan Freeman in Shawshank Redemption, prison time is slow time. Um, but we're going to talk a lot about time this evening. Uh, and Abby, if you're ready, uh, if you want to give a round of applause to Abigail Connor. Hi. So I am a PhD student at the University of Manchester, and I work on our experience of time. So I'm developing an account of uh, temporal experience that solves what's called the puzzle temporal experience um, in hopefully a way that deals with a lot of the problems that other theories face uh, and can't deal with. So I do a lot of work on slow time and our experience of how the passage of time changes. But today, I'm going to start off by kind of giving you a few definitions. So as a philosopher, I like to define what I'm talking about. And I want to define for you perception, um, kind of experience of time and the digital age before giving you a couple of crazy claims that I'm not going to defend. Um, so perception. When I talk about perception, I'm usually talking about visual perception, so what we see, but also kind of auditory perception and olfactory perception, so what we smell and what we can touch. But I think that when we perceive things, we really do perceive external world objects. 
So when I look at the table, I'm looking at a physical thing that exists outside of me and not some kind of um, sense data, so not a mental image. It's something external to me. And in perceiving that, I am related to those things. So I'm either acquainted with them or just in a relation to them. So my, my perception is of those external world things. There are a couple of different views of how perception kind of can relate us to these external world things, and I'm fairly neutral on that. But I also defend what's called a representationalist account of perception, which says that we, um, we represent external world things as being a certain way. So in perceiving this table, I represent it as having a certain shape, um, as being a certain color, perhaps being a certain distance from myself, um, being a certain size. So I represent it as having those properties. I just really quickly want to distinguish between veridical perception and illusory perception and hallucination. So in veridical perception, so kind of true, correct perception, then I'm representing the external world objects in the correct way. So I'm representing them as having the properties that they in fact do have. Whereas in illusion, um, I may represent an object as having a property that it doesn't have. So I'm sure we all remember the bent stick from science. Um, in seeing a bent stick in water, we represent the stick as being bent, as having the property of bentness, when in fact it has the property of being straight. Hallucinations. I may represent the world as being a completely different way from how it in fact is. Um, I may represent a pink pig flying around my head, where in fact there is no pink pig at all. So the main point of this is just to let you know that when I'm talking about perception, I really am talking about real things in the world. Um, and I think that we are related to those things. So time. I am not sure what time itself is. Um, I guess it's a, a construct. Um, what I work on is temporal properties. So I'm going to talk you through a couple of temporal properties. So there's a property of simultaneity. So when two events are simultaneous, they occur at the same time. So say there's two flashes of light that occur at the same time. Um, those two flashes of lights are simultaneous. They have the property of being simultaneous. Succession. So um, if two events are successive, then one follows on from the other. There may be kind of a, a flash on the right-hand side, your left, um, at time t1, and a later flash at time t2, and t2 flash follows on from the first one. So they are successive. And duration. So an event has duration if it's extended over time. So if it takes time to occur. Perhaps um, the flash is held on for a bit longer, and it takes two seconds, then that event has the duration of two seconds. But our experience of time is, can be uh, drastically different from this, these actual properties, the objective properties of time. So the objective temporal properties are the properties actually had by the events. So whether they're actually occurring at the same time or actually occurring one after the other. But in perception, it's the temporal properties that events seem to have. So an event um, may seem to last for a certain amount of time, or it may seem to follow on from something else. But these subjective temporal properties, or what I call the phenomenal temporal properties, can really differ from the objective ones. So think about thunder and lightning. These are two events that occur at the same time. They objectively occur simultaneously, or at least if there's a slight difference, for the sake of argument, we can accept they occur at the same time. But 
when we perceive thunder and lightning, we, we see the thunder, sorry, we see the lightning first, and then we hear the thunder, and that's because of the speed it takes for the travel, for the light and the sound to travel. So these have the actual property of being simultaneous, but they're perceived as occurring successively. Um, there are kind of examples of successive illusions that we can go on to if anyone's interested in afterwards. So they're called post-diction and color fee. And this is just when events that um, they seem to occur in a different order than they objectively occur in. My main interest is in duration, so how long events seem to take. And um, there are things like fast time and slow time. So if you're in the pub on a Friday night or Thursday night as it is, it may seem like time has passed really quickly. So you look at your watch and you're like, oh no, I've missed dinner. Five hours have gone past when really I only should have been here for an hour. So this is an experience of fast time um, where it feels like the event was over much more quickly than it in fact was. There's also slow time. So um, if you're really bored, for example, and you're waiting for a bus and you're kind of looking at your watch and you're really paying attention to time, it feels like it's dragging on, like it's taking forever to occur. And this is an experience of slow time. So both cases where the duration, or the, sorry, the phenomenal duration of the event comes apart from the objective duration of the event. There's also kind of slow motion experiences. So I think this is crazy, but people um, who are falling off a cliff, for example, they experience events as occurring in slow motion. I've done quite a lot of work on how that changes our subjective passage of time. So the digital age. I want to focus on social media. So um, kind of the emergence of the fact that we have this computer in our pocket. We have the world's information on us at all times, and we often scroll through that. Um, so we may get constant communication. I might get a text, a phone call, a Facebook message, an Instagram message. There's constant different ways of being communicated with, and these are all events going on in our day-to-day -day life. And over the last kind of five, ten years, it's just increased so much more, and we're having kind of constant interaction with our phones and constant interaction with the outside world. So they're my definitions, the kind of philosophic background. Here's to my claims. So my first claim is that digital media speeds up our passage of time. So I need to give you a, a tiny bit of background before I can uh, state this. But when we um, pay attention to time, so when we're waiting for the bus and we're really bored, and we're kind of looking at our watch all the time, and we pay attention to time, then we overestimate durations. It seems like events take much longer um, than they actually do. So it felt like I was waiting for the bus for ages, but really, in fact, it was just five minutes. We're just impatient. So when we're focusing on time, it seems to pass more slowly. However, when we're distracted, then we underestimate interval lengths. So if I'm distracted, and I'm kind of not aware that the bus is taking so long um, because I'm engaged in some other kind of activity, talking to my friend, for example, then it seems like it goes much more quickly. And I think that we use social media in order to fill time. So if I'm watching TV and I'm slightly bored because it's not quite entertaining me enough, I'll flick through my Instagram. Um, if I'm walking, just as Tim was saying, not me personally because it also annoys me, um, if someone's walking and they're not quite entertained enough by the fact that they're engaging in this walking, they'll also be looking through their phones. So we have this constant access to social media and um, we use it to stop being bored. So because we aren't attending to time 
and aren't intending to the events that we are currently engaged in, it takes our attention away from the passage of time and it speeds up our passage of time. So that's my first claim, that uh, the distraction of digital media speeds up our subjective passage of time. And then my second claim, which seems contradictory, is that it also slows it down. However, this is in retrospect. So when we kind of get to the end of an interval, or say the end of a day, and we look back over that interval, then we um, measure duration relative to the amount of events that have gone on. So um, as Ornstein says, the, the duration is inferred from the amount of information in stored memory. And we are engaging in so many more activities in a day. So I'm not just watching TV. I'm not just walking. I'm also kind of communicating with my friends. I'm also looking through the recent news stories. I'm also looking through Instagram. I'm also engaging in all these activities at one time that the amount of events that I participate in in a day is so much more. So when I get to the end of the day, the interval seems so much longer. So in, in kind of um, this filling of time, in stopping ourselves being bored, it feels like our days just last so much longer. Might explain why we're all so tired at the end of the day. So in conclusion, I've claimed that as we live it, our lives fly by, but in retrospect, our days seem to be so much longer. Thank you. Thank you very much, Toby. I did forget to mention at the beginning, you have some pencils and you have some notepads. Uh, in part two, we're going to have a discussion and they're going to be led by your questions. So at any point in this uh, evening, it can be directed at one of the speakers. It can be just a general question. If you're good at drawing, uh, we're not going to say no to a nice drawing. Um, if you've got a shopping list, that would be interesting to see what you're all eating. Uh, I can't really think of anything else to say. So we'll just wait. Sarah, are you ready? Oh, no, we'll give it time. I will uh, tell you a small story about, uh, I recently got a watch for my birthday, and, and I last had a watch like six years ago, uh, and I was uh, tasting very carefully the, um, the culture of Amsterdam. Uh, and I was having a conversation about time to a friend, and I, and I took off my watch and launched it into a canal and denounced time. And uh, six years later, I'm on stage in front of an audience of people in the, uh, about time. Um, I can't think of anything else to say. Uh, has anyone seen the Richard Curtis About Time film? What do we think of it? Seven out of ten. That's f <laughs> there we go. Four out of ten. Can we settle on five out of ten? What's that in, ro what's that in Rotten Tomatoes? Two? Two percent? Who knows? Uh, has anybody else got a nice watch? <laughs> this is how we're going to fill time, mate. We're going to go around everyone's watches. Anyone? No one's got time for the watch to speak. Anyway. What are your views on daylight savings? Daylight savings. I'm a big fan of napping. Uh, so I'll just I'll stay in bed and people can tell me what time it is, man. Right. I'm not going to complain. Or, yeah, I'm not going to complain to the sun. Or the calendar. Uh, still here, man. Sarah, are you ready? Perfect. Uh, a round of applause, please, uh, for Sarah Day-Thompson. Um, I do tend to move around a little bit, so I'm like slightly afraid I'm just like yank this out of the, the sound system. So apologies if that happens, just continue like nothing, nothing went wrong. 
So uh, as Tim said, I'm Sarah Day Thompson, and I work for an organization called the Digital Preservation Coalition. So I'm just going to take a little bit of a minute to talk about what that is and what I do, because I feel like I'm, it's slightly less obvious maybe than what the other speakers tonight um, do. Um, and just as a caveat, uh, this is not nearly as deep or as thoughtful as what Abby just discussed. I don't spend nearly as much time thinking, um, so just put any notions of, of that out of, out of your head. Uh, I am a an archivist by training, um, so all the sort of dusty old boxes that you see the old ladies in the cardigans, which yes, I deliberately wore a cardigan tonight, um, represent. Um, but what I do is help organizations uh, do that job, keeping things, um, but digital things. Um, so that can be the digital form of your traditional archives. You know, your government archives have all these records of things that the government have done. Um, and your um, libraries have all these manuscripts that famous authors like wrote their original drafts. And we keep the digital forms of those as well. But if you think about digital, it's much more complex than that. Like software, for instance, has completely changed the way that we interact and the way that we are, um, the way businesses run, the way entire industries and economies are set up. Um, and that software needs to be preserved as well. So it's not just sort of the Word document, it's Microsoft Word. And think about video games and like online multiplayer games that are really complex. Um, so I won't get into the speci specifics of how you technically might go about preserving that. But just to help like start you thinking about what I mean by the digital stuff that we archive. Um, and also just a caveat, uh, I work for a coalition, an advocacy organization that provides support to other organizations. So we do not actually preserve anything. We uh, give advice and help libraries, archives, banks, corporations, anybody who has digital stuff, we help our members um, preserve their digital things. So I don't do it, I just tell other people how to do it. So my professional definition of perception, um, I think in terms of archiving digital stuff, one really basic thing to keep in mind is that all digital stuff is binary. It's all ones and zeros. And like, I'm not fluent in that. I can't just look at a bunch of ones and zeros and know that it's a picture of Boris Johnson or, or you know whatever. Um, so it's just to keep in mind that when you see something, it is code, it's binary, that has been read by a piece of software to create this performance that allows you to understand it and for it to have meaning. Um, so at a base level, what I do is, is about understanding um, how to preserve all the things to ensure that people in the future can perceive it and interact with it as well. Um, so our job as digital preservation experts is to make sure these, this digital data, this digital stuff um, remains authentic and that means that it's the same. We can't promise that it's good or true or right, but that it's the same, and that since we got it, it hasn't changed. And the way we decide if something has stayed the same is that we assign it properties or variables. Um, and the important thing I want to get across here, um, well, besides, this is a Word document, in case you didn't know. And on the right-hand side is actually a really beautiful piece of art um, by an artist who used a very specific version of Instagram, as you can tell, it's a bit old school, that is meant to be viewed using this sort of color palette and everything on a specific browser so that the images um, will fall and be placed in the right, right place. So you can see there's a big difference between, oh, like, how do we preserve this Word document? It might just be the content of the document. Whereas something that, like a piece of art that has um, a lot more very thoughtful, specific components, it's a lot more difficult to make sure what we preserve is actually what it was originally intended to be, and that people in 100 years can look at that and more or less understand what it was. 
But the thing I wanted to get across is that those significant properties and how we decide what makes a thing itself is archivists. And to remember whenever, even you're in an official archive library, like it's the big scary white building, it's subjective. There's no such thing as objective, unbiased truth. Um, so I'm not getting up here to say that we're, you know, we're the end all we decide. Um, well, we do decide, but it's not objective. And keep that in mind. Time is really important for digital preservation because if there were no such thing as time, I would not have a job. The entire business that we're in is to make sure things are preserved over time. Um, so in the business, in information professionals, archivists, librarians, everyone else, um, the way we control this is something called retention schedules. And it's a big deal. There are like whole conferences about this. And it's basically just rules about how long to keep the data. So some things are only kept for a very short period of time. Uh, and the thing to mention here is stuff with personal data. So there are rules. So official institutions have to destroy digital records that contain personal information. And that has to be controlled. We can't just put it on a hard drive somewhere and forget about it. We have to know where it is, when it was put there, and when it has to be destroyed. Other things have to be kept for a very long time. Um, and in some ways, that's the bigger challenge because you have to kind of have your crystal ball and predict, predict like what will technology be like? What you know, devices will we use? How will people access things? Like, will humans even exist? Um, so we see two different um, things here. Uh, on the one hand, sometimes uh, digital preservation people have to intervene really quickly because content disappears really fast. So um, content on the web is sort of the classic example of this. So websites disappear really quickly. Even official ones that come from official institutions, um, either they you know, upgrade to a different sort of web service or the business goes under and things disappear. So if archivists don't intervene quickly, like right now, like within the next six months, it could disappear forever. Um, and I'm just using the climate change uh, data on the White House administration website um, just so that you think that what I do is really relevant and cool. But that is a good example of why we might need to intervene quickly to make sure uh, that things like political persuasions and administrations don't cause things to just disappear. Uh, but then you have things like nuclear waste. Um, so I have a colleague who's currently doing some consulting with the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. Uh, and some of this nuclear waste could be active and dangerous for 10,000 years. So how do you preserve something that you can be confident that humans, if they still exist in 10,000 years, will know that that's dangerous and don't open it because everyone will die? Digital age. Um, so I felt a little bit like maybe when we were all chosen as speakers, this one was me, like I'm the digital age. Um, so this is obviously really relevant. Um, archivists are now having to deal with bits and um, machines and hardware and things because of the digital age. And that's really about information. And it's changed. And uh, technology has been created that really changes how we store and retrieve, interact, and analyze data. Um, which has also created a really exciting and dangerous situation where really large amounts of data about people can be collected and linked with other sources of data. Um, I'm not scaremongering, I just, it's true. Um, but this creates a lot of really good opportunities for better infrastructure, uh, for better governance, for better communication, um, but it does make it easier for people um, to be exposed. And that's why you feel like you don't have any privacy because once you're out there, um, you can be found. I promise not to scaremonger. I'm not doing a good job. Um, 
So I just wanted to take this opportunity that's slightly off topic. So I work in digital preservation, but my a uh, special thing that I look after with our members is web archiving and social media archiving. And so I always am looking for opportunities, you know, at parties and things to speak to people who aren't like nerdy archivists like me and they're like, I already know. Um, but, you know, be your own archivist. The thing about the digital age is that archivists and professionals are no longer the gatekeepers of information. Anybody with a Wi-Fi connection and a Twitter account can disseminate information. So, you know, be aware of that and interrogate any information you see in front of you and think about um, where it comes from. Why did this appear when you searched for it? Um, who created it? Like, if you do a deep dive search and try and figure out where content originated and you can't find it, it's probably crap. So, like, not definitely crap, but it's just a really good way that if you spent, like, two hours on the internet trying to find out where this came from and you can't, um, maybe look for alternative information. Um, and lastly, to remember that these social media platforms, which are awesome, I'm on all of them, I'm on them all the time, I'm addicted, um, they're for sharing, not for archiving. So they will not save your stuff. If you have important conversations or important photos or content that you've shared, they are not gonna look after that for you. So if these platforms go under, they have no responsibility to, put, to give the stuff back to you. And I've just pulled this from the Twitter Terms of Service. I know no one wants to read that, like the like 20 million page document of tiny font, like I read that, so that you don't have to. So I pulled this from that. The Twitter entity shall not be liable for any data loss. They're covering themselves, they go under. So um, my advice, I just realized how much up the slide got. It's kind of ironic, fake news like falling off of the, uh, melting off of the scroll, I don't know. Um, but there are ways for you to actively look after your own content, and it's actually pretty straightforward. You just have to do something about it. So I have written um, a quick guide to how to download and save your own social media. So you don't have to just go through and like download individual photos, which you might wanna do. You can download your whole experience, your whole life on these platforms, and most of them um, provide a service on the platform for you to do that. Um, and, I, and this blog post on our website also has a little bit of information more generally about making sure you're looking after your own digital content. You know where it is, you know if it's private, and you know you've got it for, for the future. Um, the end. Thank you very much. That was really good. Thank you. Uh, applause again. And on that note, if, if anyone's got an, uh, an afternoon or two to spend, uh, I downloaded all my Facebook information and put it into a PDF, and it's four and a half thousand pages long. Now, if I wanted to get that printed and put into a sack, which I plan to do, it's like 1,500 quid's worth of printing. So maybe save, I'm going to save myself 1,500 quid's worth of printing, and you can download your own data. Anyway, uh, our last speaker this evening uh, is uh, director David Wilkinson. He's got a new film out uh, called uh, Postcards from the 48%, which is about the Brexit debate uh, from the Remainers' point of view. So another uh, warm round of applause for David Wilkinson, please. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, I think I've been chosen because I'm a filmmaker from Leeds, and there aren't many of us. Um, to quote uh, or misquote Charles Dickens when he said, um, you know, these are, the, these are now the best of times and the worst of times for filmmakers because things have changed. Uh, I entered the industry in 1970 and it was a very different business. And um, how many of you here have heard of somebody called Louis Le Prince? Yes. 
Oh, good, at last. Um, I spent 31 years trying to raise the money to prove that the world's first film was made in Leeds by Louis Le Prince. I then spent two years making that film. And uh, it was extraordinary. I, you know, throughout my entire career, whenever I've been in Hollywood or anywhere, uh, or Cannes or somewhere, and people say, where do you come from? And I go, I come from where film was invented. And they said, oh, you don't sound French. I mean, I don't actually sound Yorkshire anymore. Or you don't sound American, because the, the, the general opinion was it was either the Lumieres or it was Edison. And it wasn't. It was a Frenchman called Louis Le Prince. And what he was trying to do, there was only one motivation for him, and it was the same with all the 15 pioneers who were in those early days. And that was they wanted to catch a moment in time. And that, for me, is what filmmaking is, or television making. It's about capturing something. Even if you're doing a drama, it's catching those actors' performances and you know, that story at that time. You can get a film of Hamlet and people make it in different decades and it will be very, very different. Why I say this is um, a very exciting period, particularly exciting for anybody in Yorkshire, because um, Channel 4 are coming here and one of Channel 4's remits is they have to encourage filmmakers and programme makers within Yorkshire. Over the years, um, we've seen in, in Liverpool and Manchester and in Scotland enormous growth and in Bristol. And historically, when Yorkshire Television here, which is one of the 15 franchise companies and one of the main five, they would never work with independents. And I think, from what I'm told, it was one of the decisions to come here. So any of you who are thinking of programme making, you really must consider it in the next couple of years because they're going to be falling over backwards to employ you. And what is particularly good about this moment in time compared with the time that I took to make films. I made, a, I've made lots of documentaries. I've, I've been involved in 120 films, either as a distributor, a writer, producer, director, uh, or as an actor. And um, in the old days, I made a film called James Herrick's Yorkshire, which was all about this man who was a vet, and he wrote about his you know, way. It was a very successful film and based on a hugely successful TV series and, and books. And so I would make... I go off and shoot this, and for a 10-minute roll of film we shot on Super 16, it cost me £140. Now, that was the, the purchase price of it and also the cost of developing it. And so what would happen, I would be, say, in Helmsley, and every 48 hours I would have to get that on a train down to uh, London for it to be processed for the insurance company. So I would zoom off down here on a Sunday night because I couldn't deliver it in York or Scarborough, which were also close. So it would then be put off. Uh, it, it would go overnight down to London. It would then be collected by the labs. And that evening, the labs would tell me that all these rolls of film were out of focus or they didn't work because there was no way of telling what was on the film. So the actual process of filmmaking is so easy now, it's speeded up, because you, a, a, it doesn't cost that much money, um, so you, you're shooting it in a much shorter space of time, but also you can see instantly. Um, the whole digital, the irony was, I um, uh, was talking to Martin Scorsese's office, who was the only person in the film industry in over 40 years who'd ever heard of Louis Le Prince, it was extraordinary in, in this business, considering how important this man was. Um, and they said to me, of course, you are shooting on film, aren't you? And I said, no. I said, no, why would I want to shoot on film? And there's this whole 
belief that, that film is better than digital. Digital is so much better. And something else, because I'm very old school, I would never make a film until I'd got all the money in the bank. And on that one, I was just getting nowhere. I, uh, a former Lord Mayor of Leeds gave me 40,000 pounds, which wasn't enough to, uh, uh, you know, to complete the film, but it was enough to start it. And what it suddenly occurred to me, which I never really uh, thought about before, is I can, when you're doing documentaries, you can just start filming it. I mean, you can, I could just shot the whole film on my iPhone, and I suspect that most people wouldn't have noticed. Um, so, uh, but that's also had that, the sort of um, double-edged sword, really, because it means that um, not only is it so much easier to make films now, and no longer are there gatekeepers. You don't have to have the Channel 4 saying, we don't like this. You can actually do it yourself. You can put it up on the internet. Finding the audience is much more difficult. But what that has meant on that double-edged sword is that there is suddenly a vast amount of programming out there in films. And I, with my distributor's hat on, what I see is literally hundreds... I only distribute British and Irish films, and I see literally hundreds of films made every year where people have made them for you know, 2,000 pounds or something but they've never thought about the audience and whether there is an audience for it and whether that will sustain, um, you know, because people, are, when people, if they're seeing it in the cinema, they're paying the same seven pounds to see a film shot for, like my film is 125,000 pounds, or they're going to see a 125 million pound film. So it's meant that suddenly th there are a lot more people, which I think is very exciting, but it's a problem because there are now so many film schools. There are four film schools in, or teaching film uh, uh, courses in Leeds, and not one of the fuckers ever asked me to talk. I keep saying to them, I know so much about film, I don't want to be paid, I just like Leeds, I like coming back. Can I just do anything? And they just don't do it. And you've got film courses all around the country. I don't actually think you actually need to go to film school, but that's a different debate. So for any of you out there, it literally is getting your phone. Have, have you, any of you heard or seen a film called Tangerine? It, it, was, on, it was a brilliant film. Uh, it was on Channel 4 only recently, or Film 4. And that was all sh entirely shot on um, uh, iPhones. And it was very simple. I asked the director why he did that. Was it because he believed in the technology? And he said, no, because it's all to shoot with the, uh, it's all about the, uh, the, the trans uh, prostitutes in LA, in West Hollywood. And um, he said, no, no, it's simple. If you shoot on an iPhone, they can't stop you. No matter how hard in America, they can't stop you. If he'd shot on a, uh, a Canon, um, what do they call them? I've forgotten, I filmed the first film on it. Or a um, uh, Sony FS7, you would have had to have a license, you would have had to have permission, you would have had to have insurance. So the digital age has given everybody the ability to be a filmmaker. And various people have said over the years that everybody's got a book in them. I mean, it's my belief that everybody has a film in them, and some of them have a great many more. And I don't know where this goes on time. Oh, also, interestingly, is, uh, you know, the, as, as Tim said, um, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to make postcards from the 48th because it's, it's, an, it's a stop Brexit film from start to finish. And all the, none of the television companies want it. They're all scared of it. Some of them are in the, you know, want Brexit to happen for various different reasons. And I didn't. 
And the beauty was, is that I was able to get it into 60 cinemas, and now I'm able to get it uh, online. And I've had a lot of people who voted leave who have since seen it. Some of them said, you're a fucking cunt. Um, you know, um, <laughs> stick to uh, democracy, but of course, democracy isn't a moment in time. Um, but a lot of people have seen it and said, I didn't realize this and I didn't realize that. So I believe that doing something like that has opened up the debate because we were able, I have 65 levers in the film and they were able to put forward um, why they believe that we should stay part of the EU. Um, and that's something that is you know, very new now, is that there is nothing to stop any of you making films and I want you to be coming to me in the next five years saying, David, I heard you do this talk, I've now made this film, will you help me get it in the cinema? And I've probably gone on for too long, have I not? Oh, I've got, um, so how many of you here are interested in making films at all? Or television programs? Uh, I'd like to talk to you afterwards about what you're doing about it, because one of the things, when I grew up in Leeds, in Cookridge and Horsforth, and it then Leeds was very dull compared with what it is now. Manchester and Sheffield were much more exciting. Um, and then you really did have to go to London, and now you don't have to go anywhere. I mean, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I had an office with three or four people working for me um, in Pinewood, and now all I need is a laptop, which three hours ago was stolen at King's Cross. But I can do everything on the laptop, and people in those old days, unless you had an office, with an address that meant something, you couldn't get, you know, Channel 4 would have never seen me, the BBC wouldn't have seen me. Now, nobody gives a fuck. You can be working out there and you can come up with the most brilliant um, idea. So that's, as time accelerates, um, technology is improving all the time and it makes it easier for everybody to have a voice out there. The only problem uh, I think that's occurred by it, and so people mentioned it earlier, is attention spans is that it's, when I showed my Stop Brexit film in the, at the Parliament, in the EU Parliament in Brussels, there were a number of young people in the film, and I said, what did you think of it? And they went, David, it's so fucking boring. They said, you know, we can only get our sound bites in, uh, in five-minute um, batches. And that is a problem, is that um, filmmakers like me, and you know, I'm coming to the end of my career, but we still think in 90 minutes, 100 minute terms, because that's how we were brought up. That's when you made a documentary film to go in the cinema, that's the duration it had to be. Um, but even I, um, I went to see a film called Roma. I don't know if any of you have seen it, it's a black and white film. I, I saw it in uh, the Denver Film Festival and because I was surrounded by filmmakers in an enormous cinema, I couldn't leave. And I did find it quite boring the first, 10 or 15 minutes, but I stayed with it, and I, for me, it's the best film I saw the whole of last year. And if I had seen that on Netflix, I'd have left after 10 minutes, I'd have never gone back. So time has also, it's improved things, but it's also given us all a very short attention span. Thank you. Thank you. Applause again, David Wilkinson. So we're going to have a 25-minute break. Go have your cigarettes. Go get some more beer. Have some wine. All your questions, put them in here, and we'll come back at the end and, uh, well, we'll start a discussion. Uh, thank you very much.
Ladies and gentlemen, is everyone all right? Is everyone good? Everyone's best? It's like a bit of primary school. This is pretty great. Uh, can I just have a round of applause for Hugo at Mormon and the Brudenell Groove guys as well, please? They've been really good to us. And then another round of applause for our, uh, our three specialists. So you're going to have to indulge us because none of us have ever done anything like this before. Uh, but all your questions were really great. Uh, and I think, David, would you like to pick the first one or we'll just get straight into having a bit of a natter, really? Yeah, let's go for it. Unless you want to say anything else that you didn't get to mention in your talk. No? Okay. David, go for it. That's much heavier than I thought it was. Really heavy. Take it to the scrap man, we could pay for this evening. You have to read this, I can't, it's too small oh for me to read. It's the trouble with getting older. I wouldn't advise doing it if I was you. Okay, it's a, uh, uh, you're alone in a room with, uh, uh, with time for a minute. What do you do? Uh, what do you ask? Oh, I really use time very badly, and it's running out for me. Um, uh, the, gr the, the great thing I've discovered at the age of 63 with time is so much that filled my time when I was younger doesn't mean anything. It's irrelevant. And spending time with my children who have both grown up, one will be 35 this year, the other's 31, that's what I've realized about time. And when I was younger, I didn't spend enough time with them. And that's because I was trying to get on. You know, when you know, there's so many people out there and you're trying to move forward, you're constantly thinking about the future, about how's this gonna affect me in the future. And now, there's not that much future for me left. Most of my time is behind me. So when I'm thinking about time, that's what I think about, is that I should spend more time with them. And um, what time I have left, I've, I've jettisoned an awful lot of stuff that I do, and I'm just now concentrating on the things I really want to do, which unfortunately isn't very rewarding, but my wife is the costume designer on The Crown, so she's earning good money, so I can go off and do my things for nothing. <laughs> and if you had a spare minute in your day, apart from reaching for your phone and scrolling, how would you, would you spend that minute? Uh, I have lots of spare minutes. I mean, people think that I'm actually very busy, and I like to see what others are doing. I'm fascinated in, in just seeing how other people approach what I do. I'm inst I, it never happened when I was younger. I didn't go, particularly with contemporaries, I didn't go, I like that, I like what you're doing things. Now, I love to see what they're doing, friends and things. So I, I don't know how to answer that. Abby, do you spend your spare minute thinking about time? Yeah, I really do, yeah. <laughs> always, all my minutes. Um, so I'm gonna kind of consider this question as in if I'm in a room with time, where time's like a, a being, and I can ask time a question. I don't know if that's what was meant. Um, but if I, at the moment, I'm trying to work out how I think duration is kind of inexperience, right? So if I 
watch an event and it lasts for two seconds. I can measure that with a stop clock and I can say, oh, objectively that lasted for two seconds. But if you reflect on your perception, there's no number two in it, right? There's no actual numbers in our experience. So I would ask time, if time were a being, um, how, it, how it thinks that it enters into our perceptual experience, how it thinks that we perceive it um, and how it can be measured uh, subjectively. Sorry. Are you going to make yeah, me follow gonna, that? I'm going to follow that. Um, all right, so it's time. If I could ask, ask it, her, obviously a woman, a question. Um, I think one of the big motivators, not just for archivists, but for all of society, and we're like, we do archiving and we keep things, and we think preserving knowledge over time is important. And we do these things through like, you know, future people will need these. Like future people need to know like how we did everything wrong and so they can do it better. Um, so we, that's a huge motivator, is these future people that are, you know, hypothetical. So I guess I would ask time, you know, are, will they remember? Is someone out there in 10,000 years, do they remember where all these nuclear waste sites are and are, you know, are they gonna destroy the planet because we couldn't keep didn't come up with a good enough idea or you know is someone gonna remember these stories that we're preserving so did it work did I it guess? work I think that's a fair question but then in, I, I read your uh, you did a whole paper the watch report from 2016 and that you said there was the kind of short-term middle-term and long-term but that when you said about the 10,000 years is that like still classed as long-term or is that super long-term that's so long-term that they don't deal with it. So the official retention schedule, remember we learned that earlier, <laughs> is 300 years. Because okay. in, in terms of that institution, that is the longest they can plan for. Um, so I guess it's just sort of rolling <laughs> after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they do have, um, I mentioned this actually to Abby in between, because I thought it was fascinating. Um, so my colleague who's consulting with the, Nash, the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority um, she's sort of just getting started with this work and she's visiting and learned that they have an entire working party. I can't remember the exact title, but it's like story making and myth making. So one of their strategies is to actually create myths that families will pass down like to their children, generation after generation, to remember that you know these big yellow bins are bad and you don't open them. So that's actually like this government funded organization, like that's a working party, is how do we create a mythology because 10,000 years, you're like, well, will people still have language? Will they like have computers? Will like what? Yeah. What do we do? Will we just write on the wall like 65,000 years ago, <laughs> just a big arrow going no? Don't yeah, we'll, pass. Ju we'll just paint it on yeah, a cave yeah. wall nearby and hope for the just best. Just cross our fingers, yeah. Abby, do you want to pick a, another question? It says you talked about the digital distraction when perhaps watching TV. Sometimes I might do something else whilst watching TV, like work. Um, what makes digital or social media inherently different, faster than work, which is slow? Um, so I think that maybe it's more, in terms of this, it's more that um, maybe it's just me, but I use social media to stop being bored. So I'm not particularly interested in what everyone else is doing. Um, but I, if I'm bored, I will 
use social media to kind of pass my time. So maybe I find that it goes faster. Um, I also personally find that work goes quite quickly. Um, it's usually something that you enjoy. So if you're really enjoying doing your work, then it might seem like it's going quite quickly. Whereas if you're really not enjoying your work and it's dragging on, then although you're watching TV and although you're busy and although you're distracted, it might seem to pass more slowly. Um, so I'm guessing that that kind of means that in some ways I enjoy social media, even though I kind of hinted that I don't. Um, yeah, interesting. I guess it depends on what your perspective of work is. I find my work goes really, really quite quickly. Um, I'll notice that a few hours have passed very quickly. But if it, it's tied to enjoyment as well and emotions. So if you're enjoying an event, then it will pass really quickly. If you're in the first 10 minutes of Roma, for example, and you're finding it really boring, then it might seem to drag. And then when you enjoy the film, it starts being much more, passing much more quickly. Um, so yeah, maybe it's just how you perceive that event, whether you perceive it as a positive event or a negative event. And also within that question, it, it was like on your phone, watching TV, if you take those two things away, like it's just a person on a sofa, which probably <laughs> calls into the question like, do we like spending time doing nothing anymore? Because it is so easy to, uh, if you like subscribe to the whole, like you go on your social media to get that dopamine rush or whatever, there is that, there's a chemical reaction there, but like, people can't waste time. Like people don't like to be bored anymore because exactly. there is so much. And the thing like, with walking, so I love walking and I will choose to walk over getting um, a, a bus, for example. Um, so when I'm engaged in a walking activity, I like to think or just spend the time enjoying that walking but everyone around me is on their phone so everyone's trying to pass that time more quickly or at least kind of not be focused on the event of walking because maybe they're not enjoying those everyday boring activities and they just want to pass time more quickly and i, I was uh, I, i'm not happy to admit that but if you're ever behind someone on the bus don't look at what they're writing but just look how they use their phone how much are they flicking how much are they going back to certain apps how much are they scrolling how much there was someone I was behind the other day and they were on an app that I had no idea what it was. And the more I looked, the more I thought, oh, this is, looks really bizarre because I was over their shoulder at this point. Because I was like, what is this app? Is it eBay? Is it, is it MSN? Are we back there again? Like, I, I really didn't know what it was. And at that point, I thought, I just cashed my chips and I'm happy with, like, oh, an Instagram. I, I don't know where I was going with that. But, <laughs> but it's true. People just wasted time. And the, the, like, supply and demand almost, like, Okay, uh, people like three minutes. Uh, we've seen by charts there's three minutes after lunchtime. Let's make an app for that time. I just I don't know. People don't spend time looking at one thing anymore either, though. Like so, they flick. I think it's kind of a couple of seconds. So your attention isn't grasped for more than a couple of seconds whilst looking at your phone. Which, if you're using that as an activity to distract you from another activity, seems crazy. You can't even focus on that second screen activity. But and there's a uh, I was. I did quite a lot of reading for this, and I, I really enjoyed it because I got to watch uh, two of David's film and got to read about what you do, which I needed a cup of tea and I sit down for a few days. Like, <laughs> and then Sarah as well. There was a lot of reading there. And there was a philosopher, Manuel, Manuel Castells, who is quite a jolly figure, uh, quite a jolly man if you look at him. And I want to know where he gets his glasses from. But he was saying about this idea of timeless time and about how time isn't circular anymore nor linear. We can kind of just go off wherever. And I, I was trying to put that into like a, 
an image in my head and imagine you've got 25 tabs open, you've got four apps on the go, like, and imagine each of those are different time zones. Like, no wonder we're tired, no wonder we're all over the place, because we're everywhere. And uh, is there a, I don't know, why? <laughs> <laughs> why? But then uh, on top of this, we have all the data that I assume goes along with all this, that is stored somewhere and people will pour through. But why will people want to look at our data the data is just passing time. Is it worth saving? Yeah, well, may I? May yeah, I? you go for it, you go for <laughs> so it. So a lot of that data that you're talking about that's being automatically captured, um, so through apps and things, depending on, on what it is, um, that data is captured as behavior. So what you choose to look at and how long you look at it. And a lot of these apps make money by, like Twitter, um, sell their data to big Fortune 500 companies um, who use it for consumer analysis to try and sell you things better. That's real, a really sad answer. It's um, true, though. I, but some of it, you know, like filmmakers who are sort of young, budding filmmakers and have content they've shared on Twitter or on other social media, you know, and they're you know, at the end of their career and they've got all these big hit documentary films and things, and um, there are people definitely interested in, like, oh, these things, you can see him experimenting and these things that he shared on social media. So it just depends yeah. um, what the content is and who has it and who wants it. Mm. And David, you said you, uh, w you were taught to make films within 90 minutes and 100 minutes. How, how, what's the landscape for these like 15-minute kind of... Oh, you, c you can make any length. I mean, I see wonderful films that are like 60, 60 seconds long. And it, this whole thing with social media, I mean, a lot of people say to me, particularly my wife, you, you're wasting so much time on it. And I'm not. I actually find, I make social media work for me. And it's Lord Lever once said, who was, you know, Unilever. He said that roughly 50% of all the money we spend on advertising is a total waste of money. The trouble is we don't know which 50% it is. And I fall into that category where you know, 50% of the time I'm on social media is a total waste of my time. But the other 50% is very productive because I have raised money on, f I, I just really use Facebook. Occasionally I have a blog, but I can't be bothered with that. But every day I do a post and I have all these followers in the film industry and I give advice. And through that I've raised money, I found films on Facebook, I found people to work on my films, particular Stop Brexit film where I didn't have much money. I just put an appeal out there and I was amazed how many people uh, wanted to come and work on it. And I was also amazed by how many of my friends voted leave. Uh, and surprisingly I didn't unfriend them. Um, but it, it, it is a very useful, but I've really had to make it work. I floundered around on Facebook, not, sure, not quite sure what Facebook is and was doing, but I've actively made it work for me um, in a very productive way. So I can put out something and I can get a lot of feedback which will help me in whatever I'm working on. But yes, I mean, you know, I don't actually up photographs of food and cats, but I do occasionally do, you know, time-wasting things because I am bored. I'm sat there not knowing what to do. Yeah. Shall we try another question? The suspense, by the way, for the question is... Um, what factors do we consider apart from 
phenomenal experience, right? Is that the experience, like, when you're related to the... So that's, like, the how it features in, in your experience, so how it seems to you. Right, okay. When judging how much time has passed. <laughs> <laughs> Take a drink first, it's fine. So. Yeah, read it properly. <laughs> what factors do we consider, apart from phenomenal experience? So that's kind of how your experience seems to you. And when judging how much time has passed. So. There's quite a few different answers to this. So psychologists often um, give non-phenomenal uh, accounts of time. I focus on phenomenal experience. Um, but one of them, so as I said earlier, is events. So how many events have occurred? So if you have had a really busy hour, then that hour will seem to have lasted longer. Um, but also kind of your, how many times your like, cognitive attention has switched. So if you are focusing on the same thing for an hour, even if there's lots of it, um, if you focus on many different things over that hour, then the hour will seem longer. Um, but there's also something called an internal clock. So apparently this is a pacemaker. And it's unconscious, so we're not like aware of it going on. Um, but it collects pulses, so it collects ticks. Um, and apparently, uh, before we experience an event, if we're told that we're going to need to time that event, we unconsciously turn on this um, accumulator machine thing. And I'm a philosopher, not a psychologist. But, um, and we collect these pulses. And then we are able to respond about how long it took. But what I find really interesting about this is not just, um, we don't just turn it on and off, but we can turn it on, turn it off for a little while, back on, and then add them together and give a really accurate response of how long something took. And these psychologists do it in lab conditions, and apparently we're amazing at it. Um, we can also time three different times, I, I'm picking three, we can time multiple different times and give you a, um, an average. But yeah, apparently we're really good at timing, uh, unconsciously timing events, and it's based on what they think it's based on this um, pulse accumulator machine. Inter it's called the internal clock. But yeah, this, this is the unconscious thing that allows us to measure time. Problems if these psychologists in 10, 15 years did the same test, and because we're always looking at phones and what, do you, would you have to shift your thinking? Like, okay, we've done really well up until now as a human, uh, human race to internally do these times. 20 years on Facebook and always checking our phones, we've, kind of, we've, we've short-circuited almost. So I, I really think, yeah, that it, it's going to affect it in the long term. Um, like what we might be able to judge now, if our attention span differs or if our expectation of how long it takes for something to load, for example, differs, then it's going to adapt. So do you remember when like, we had phones I can't remember how long ago, like 10, 15 years ago, and um, it'd take forever so for something to load. But you get used to that loading. You didn't feel like you were waiting for it. It just took a while. Um, and now everything's instant. So our expectation of like, instant gratification is so different that surely it's going to affect our expectation of how long things take in the future. Well, even when, when was it? December when like O2 went down and 25 million people were sat on trains having to actually talk to people. And <laughs> Waiting for the train took five minutes because waiting for the train took five minutes rather than like just people in in the headphone world and whatnot. It, and yeah, d just the example of people on the streets like it's not at epidemic levels yet, but it's getting a bit silly. Like put a mariachi band behind these people. It's a Monty Python sketch like done. 
And we could I don't know. I would like There's to be your film. Go on, go on, go on. Go on. That's your film. Oh, that's my film. And it'll be 55 seconds, because by that point, by the time I get around to making it, 60 seconds is like an hour. Anyway. But you also, I find that younger people, because you're picking up all this information all the time, what impresses me is how much faster you're absorbing it than my generation. And it's not because I'm old and find it very difficult with new technologies to master them all the time. It's just the rate that you did it. When, when we were taught, everything was at a much slower pace. I, I don't know how to explain it. You could probably, um, far better than I can, but it's just that amount of information. When I saw my children going through school, they learnt much more than we ever learnt. And that's something about the speeding up of time because there's now so many different outlets to go for that information. In my day, you were told it by the teacher and then you would have to go and find yourself by going to a library. And that meant getting on a bus or walking or, and, and just getting that information would take a long time. Now, it's a press of a button. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a, the documentary I'm doing at the moment, I feel really guilty because I'm not reading all these books. I should be down at Kew in the archive or somewhere, but I'm not because I'm going online and that's fantastic. And that's because of other people putting an awful lot of that information on there. They're giving up their time in order to do it for free. Wikipedia, some of it's wrong, but the majority of it's very good. Whereas in, in my day, you would have had to spend £185 getting Encyclopedia Britannica. And then, because that was written at a time before it was printed and before you bought it, that information was not, obviously history didn't change, but more modern things, it was out of date. Time had moved on. And you don't have that with the internet. Yeah, now Wikipedia kind of recorrects itself every can recorrect itself every minute if something's wrong. But then what you just said, then it's like you took it, you took the information in slower back then, but was it quality information? Like now we can get it from everywhere, but is it quality? Like, yeah, okay. quality. Well, I was gonna say, um, you know, don't feel guilty about not going into a library or, or archive. You, there are still experiences you can only have if you actually go in, I think particularly with archives, because a lot of times it's like, this is the piece of paper that Virginia Woolf wrote Mrs. Dalloway on, like the British Library has has that. And you can't experience that with an image of it, even a very high quality Im image of it online. But a lot of archives understand that their users, you know, want information online. You know, it's more democratic, you know, why should a researcher in Africa not have the same access to this information as someone who's a 10 minute walk away from the British Library? So. Um, that's also keeping archivists employed for us to put this information, you know, online. And it's not quite where people want it to be. You know, you, not all of the information that archives and libraries hold is available online. Um, but yeah, so that's that's all I have to say. The digital stuff you can find online, you know, that's all. That's also sometimes from archivists and, and librarians. So don't feel 100% guilty. Just like 60% guilty. <laughs> But also, just now thinking, like, what? There are eight billion people on this planet, and four and a half a billion of us are on the. By the time we get to the point where everyone, there's going to be so much more data, there's going to be so much more archiving. There's, take for example, of Africa or an island out the Pacific, like, they'll be able to put their history up. It's. By that point, will history just be the present? 
So there's an interesting statistic about sort of um, um, sort of third world countries and places, developing nations and places farther away, is the number of mobile phones and registered Facebook users is huge, but they don't have computers. So there's kind of this interesting lapse where um, you've like skipped this entire technological development up to being able to upload your own histories, your own um, information. And I think that's one of the things that makes me so excited about things like Twitter and, and social media, where these communities that before were invisible to kind of canonical archives and to sort of a wider audience are now visible. You know, there's also an ethical implication, you know, can I sit in my British Library office, like I don't have one of those, it'd be awesome, and like decide that this group of people on Twitter represent that and then I'm gonna pull it all down, maybe, like maybe try and tweet them but they don't know I'm doing it and like I'm gonna put it in my institutional Western archive. So there's, it's not, it's not perfect but it does create an opportunity um, like you're saying to, while it's dangerous and has downsides and I probably waste way more time than I should on it, it also pr creates these really interesting opportunities that weren't possible before. And, uh, and again, in your paper, there was a Cardiff University with their Cosmos program where they take 1% of everything on Twitter and they kind of gauge it. Is that, I, I wanted to know more about that, but in keeping with this, like they're not taking all the information and going, ah, we have it all, but they're, you said they're kind of looking at anything from cyberbullying to hate crime and just, just with that 1%, which I'm guessing is quite a lot of data. So the 1% thing, um, a so Cardiff University and that program were the only ones that I interviewed and allowed me to publish that they were doing that because they had permission and they have a relationship with Twitter. Um, but actually when institutions are collecting that way because of how Twitter's terms and conditions work, they're not allowed to share that data. So a bit of institutions are a bit cagey about it because they don't want to violate uh, social media terms and conditions and have that API. So they don't want the social media platform to say you cannot pull data from us anymore because then it's sort of end game. Um, but another, so a lot of institutions do that. A lot of universities and things, they have some you know, super techie computer guy who knows how to set that up. Um, and Twitter only allows you to collect up to 1%. So it's called the fire hose. It's like all data coming through uh, Twitter is 100% of every tweet, however like many a second it is now. Um, you're only allowed to take directly from Twitter 1%. So that's, it is a lot of data. Mm. But it's sort of random and not in context and it has a lot of crap. And bots, like, I don't even know what percentage, but. I think it's 50%. <laughs> I think it's 50%. <laughs> it's a lot. It's, a lot. Yeah, so it's, 50 it's, it's not like you can say, percent. like, oh, people hate Trump. You're like, well, like, a lot of people do, but also a lot of bots that are fake machines also do. So can we, how useful is this? Um, but the thing that Cardiff have done and the researchers there, who are great, they're doing really great work, um, is they combine that data that they get from Twitter, so all the tweets, um, and they do, they've, they're specialists, they're social scientists, are interested in cyberbullying and in um, sort of criminal research, but they combine that data and compare it to police data. So like data we know more about, we know where it comes from, um, we can qualify it a little bit better. Like we know it's probably not fake, it probably <laughs> really happened, it's probably humans that created it. So um, they use that to, s to compare it and say how does this information we have from Twitter compare to knowledge we have from police and how can we use it to help police and how can we use it to clarify. Um, so the Cardiff 
researchers, sorry, I could talk about this stuff all day, they do such cool stuff, um, but they were one of the first groups in the UK to compete with some of the official pollsters who try to predict election results. And so they used exclusively Twitter data to try and predict the results of the 2015 general election. Is that the right year? Yeah, that's right. Um, in this country. And I lived here for it, I should know. Uh, I'm not allowed to vote in it, but I was here. And their predictions were far more accurate than any of the traditional pollsters who have very like um, professional, very well-tested methods for predicting elections. The Twitter data used properly and understood properly still was more accurate. Um, so they weren't like sort of allowed to properly publish all of their findings because there's still rules around all the yeah. uncertainty about whether we can really use Twitter data. Um, but I think that's really interesting. Will there be no more surprises? No more mysteries because yeah, serendipity serendipity yeah. is out the window. Yeah, we we know it's gonna all happen because we predicted it from Twitter. So. That's such a sad thought. <laughs> I don't think it's true. I'm just to rectify that. Another question made into a poster. Uh, should I quit social media, David? If you quit social media, you might not be able to find any uh, any anybody to work on your films. No, I think it's it's interesting. My younger daughter doesn't do it at all, and she. Um, she will always argue with me that she has a much better quality of life than I do because I am on it a lot. Um, no, I don't think you can. It's like it's very Luddite to sort of go backwards. And social media can be used for a lot of benefit for mankind. I mean, I was, it's a terrible, um, I was talking over my sister who was here earlier, and um, I had a friend. Of, uh, an actor who died recently and he died and he was dead for several days before his body was found and the the way it was found was by him not posting on Facebook because the days when we all knocked on each other's doors to see everybody was all right which was very much to the fore when I was a child here in the 60s uh, and that doesn't happen anymore and I was involved with a couple of other people of stopping somebody we know from committing suicide because of his posts just got darker and darker. And I happened to be up, it was half past one in the morning, and there were a couple of other people that were joining in on this. And I said, we've got to really do something about it. And I rang his father because I knew his father by extraordinary coincidence, and it, it was stopped. He was, he was on the edge of doing something. And how would we have, and that's, you know, two random examples, but if it wasn't for social media, we'd have never known. He wouldn't have gone, maybe he would have gone to the Samaritans on the phone, but it was a cry for help, and um, it was picked up by other people on social media. Maybe he would have rung a friend, I don't know, but again, it's just an advanced form of communication, that's all it is, but involving an awful lot of people all around the world. So I just think that we should continue to do it, but we should do it more effectively and, and constructively. I think it's a great tool. Yeah, maybe a bit more, be a bit more sensible with how we use the data collected and yeah, don't go selling it for ridiculous purposes. So I have a few opinions on this. Um, no, I don't think we should quit social media. Um, I've obviously talked about it fairly negatively, but 
there's also a beautiful side to it. So my sister, who has a tiny new baby, lives in Australia. And I get to see pictures of this beautiful baby that I don't get to see every day. And I can FaceTime her and in the touch of a button, basically be in communication with her. Um, I've lived in different places across the world. And although I'm not in contact with all these people, I can see what they're doing in their lives. Um, I can see when people have big life events and get married and have babies, for example. Um, I thought about it, deleting everything a while ago, and I realized how few numbers I have. Like, how few people I would be able to be in contact with if it wasn't for social media. But then I see the flip side of it, um, and I see pictures of children, for example, on social media, who have never asked to be on social media. Um, so when they get to our age, and there's a picture of them as a baby with food all over their faces, are they going to be happy about that? So it, it does... I have a lot of issues with how it's used, um, and I think people who are too young have this opportunity to share so much about their lives that they're just not aware of the implications of. Like, I'm so glad I didn't have Facebook at 13. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad that's not documented um, or archived. And I just, I hope that we can kind of teach our young people how to use social media in a positive way and be there for each other and, and care for each other and communicate. Like, like a, a fair amount of people in this room had Facebook at 13, 14, and we, we won't get away with murder, but we, like, I, I said that I got all my Facebook data, and going through it is embarrassing. It, it's, th it, honestly, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror for a couple of years because it was embarrassing. But what I put it down to was our parents were still learning about the internet at the same time we were. So they were like, wow, we can do Friends Reunited and talk to people over there. And we're just like, been silly, here's a picture. And there's this whole thing about being employed. Uh, there's a whole thing about being employed, guys, if you haven't heard about it. But there's like Im about employees looking at your back history. And my mum met a teacher friend of hers whose, whose husband hires people from the, the basis of a strong social media. And he said 75% of it they're not going to hire because they don't want to see these kind of pictures or these kind of comments. And it, yeah, it's kind of spiraled out of control. But back to what you said about children and their privacy. I was on Instagram and looking at one of the pubs in Leeds and there was like a, a, a kid doing a dance and there was like the person who'd done it, uh, the person who took the picture got tagged. I was like, oh, who's taking a picture of the kid? This kid has its own, had its own social media and it was like a hundred pictures of this kid doing funny dances in like branded clothing. And I, I was like, does that kid signed anything for this? Has it sat his parents down and gone, look parents, like, I'm all fine, I'm cute, I've got blonde curly hair, I've got a cute nose, but like, keep it to three posts a day and no stories. Like, of course it hasn't, because it can't, sp doesn't have that, it doesn't know what it's getting itself in for. And if it's monetized, then who gets the money? Yeah, is that like kid going, I want 75% or it's an aunt? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parents, <laughs> come on, pay me now. Yeah, he signed the contract in Crayola. Oh, brilliant, this guy's a business genius. Yeah, that existed before social media, like ch ch child TV stars and models. Oh, and yeah, look what happened to it them. It just enabled, <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. Uh, it's obviously, yeah, just enabled uh, much more widespread. I agree. I think sometimes I see people, like a friend of mine who lives um, far away, anyway, she's uh, posted a picture of her maybe five-year-old daughter, just like a video of her completely naked running around outside, and I was like, 
wouldn't like I just wouldn't want that to be in the wrong hands. So yeah. I agree with you that people maybe should be more prudent uh, about children. Um, can I weigh in on this? Yeah, you this go for it. Um, so this was like from a you know as the digital archivist here, should you quit social media? Um, that would never be my intention. Like even sort of knowing what some of the dangers are. It's such a as you're saying fantastic opportunity to connect with people. Um, but also it's too late. So <laughs> um, if you've already been online, if you've ever shopped online, if you've ever searched on Google, you have an online footprint. So someone who wants to do you harm can. Um, you know, the NSA is already tracking you. I don't know, that might not be true. Um, so just to say, you know, you're not gonna be able to live your life fully and um, without using some of these digital services where that information is gonna be tracked you can minimize it, of course, it makes it harder for people to find you if you're not on social media, if they're kind of casually looking. Um, but I wouldn't, yeah. I mean, I, I know a lot of the dangers and how accessible and cheap sort of facial recognition software is becoming and things like that um, and why that's a problem. But I have all my social media accounts and I try and be good about privacy and taking control of it and thinking about what I'm sharing. Um, but yeah, so that's what I would say. No. Be safe. Yeah. Well, we have come to the end, but have we got social media or uh, way either any of you, uh, Sarah? I do. I don't. I don't know if you're sharing the slides. Oh, we can do. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but my Twitter handle is on my first slide. It's just at S Day Thompson. Um, so if you have any questions, I spend way too much time on Twitter, so you can definitely get me there. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> Like I have Facebook, and my name's Abigail Connor, but other than that, I, I have no idea. Cool. And David? Uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook. I have my full name, David Nicholas Wilkinson. And um, I used to do Twitter, but I, I find it very hard to be succinct. <laughs> <laughs> That's no bad thing. <laughs> well, anyway, it has, been a, oh, it has been a pleasure, and thank you for coming out as well. There's at least 10 more people than I thought we'd get, which is good. Uh, a round of applause for David Wilkinson, Abby Corner, and Sarah Day Thompson. And for more and more as well, Brunel Bright, and give yourselves a round of applause as well. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And thank you, Tim.